Hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword, I'm Dave Tish. The Afterword's our weekly podcast where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about. And I'm coming to you live from Dane County Regional Airport here in Madison, Wisconsin. I flew out this weekend to be the efficient of a wedding for a couple of folks who go to Westgate who are good friends. So congratulations, Caitlin and Tice for your wedding. We're so excited to see what God does in and through you guys. And I'm so excited to be a part of your big day. Earlier this week, I got a chance to sit down with Liz Diddy and talk about this week's message. Now, Liz is not only a speaker and an author and a member of Westgate's teaching team, but she spoke at Vintage Faith this past weekend on this topic. Vintage Faith is also going through the sermon series with us. They're our friend church or sister church over in Santa Cruz. Dan Kimball's the lead pastor there. And um, he's the one who wrote the book, How Not to Read the Bible. And Liz spoke on the very controversial and important topic of whether or not the Bible is anti-women. And Liz is not only a part of our teaching team, but she's also a good friend. So I wanted to have her on to share her experiences because her own life story actually dovetails into this topic. And so I I wanted Liz to come on and share not only her life experiences, but what she's learned from scripture. So let's dive in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to The Afterword here with my good friend, Liz Diddy. Liz, uh, you spoke this past weekend at Vintage Faith Church. And as a part of our entire kind of church, we, we've been going through this book, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. And today, this weekend, we came to um, a, a kind of a difficult one and one that's again part of your story, part of part of like who you are and, and your your story as a Christian is is the Bible anti-women? Is it Bible anti-woman? You know, is are these passages yeah. in this uh, is it misogynistic? Because there's all these passages that we see um, in this. And so I, I first of all, thanks for digging in. This is not an easy topic, and I know it's probably not an easy topic for you just in general with your story. So uh, why don't you just let folks know kind of a little bit about your past and then just, I'd love to hear um, more about your research or study, the conclusions you've come to and, and, and how you made your way through this difficult question. Yeah, well, I was at Vintage Faith. Uh, Dana was at Saratoga and Karina was at South Hills. Um, And the three of us worked together. And, you know, all of us actually have really different stories Mm. when it comes to the Bible and God's attitude towards women. Mm. Um, I grew up uh, in a hyper-fundamentalist church that took these silence and submission passages very literally. Uh, Dana grew up in, you know, like a really polite church where um, women had very different and prescribed roles. um, And they, you know, there were definitely roles that were off limits to them, but never felt like she was devalued um, within that, that um, community. And, um, and Karina just came straight out. Uh, You know, she was not raised in the church at all. And she, she said that she just was so thankful that no one ever showed her these verses when she was first heard the gospel and found Jesus because Jesus completely saved her life, but she would have never become a Christian if she thought that um, it was, that there was, you know, this 
this crazy attitude towards women and, um, you know, tier system in the church where, um, you know, only men could hold power or that women were somehow, you know, supposed to be, or, you know, designed to be, um, submissive and obedient and silent. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, even as we were talking about putting this together, there's, um, there's just a wide swath of people who are hearing these verses and the stories that they bring really change the way that they experience and translate these verses into totally. their lives. And so, you know, for non-Christians, you know, gosh, these, these verses really kind of raise the question of whether or not the good news of the gospel is actually good news for women. <laughs> Right. You know, congratulations, right. Jesus saved you from your sins. Now, you know, um, this is, you know, we'd like you to be silent and submissive. So uh, I, I think it's very, very important that we try to get this right. Um, right. Because if we don't, then the gospel isn't good for women. And the church will never live up to its full potential without its women. So Liz, when you were going up, um, and forgive me if, if this is um, not the way to describe it, but you said you have hyper-fundamentalist background. Your dad was a pastor of the church where you attended. It, would you say that women were treated like second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven? Is that a fair way to say it? Or, or how, how would you describe that environment? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, one of the unique things for me is that the church that I grew up in took these verses absolutely um, at face value and, you know, believed that if the Bible said it, we need to believe it. And so uh, I grew up in a, in a church environment where women were silent women were silent. <laughs> Unless you were singing, there were no voices. There were no women's voices um, in worship um, services or church services. Um, like a woman couldn't um, give announcements or lead worship. Or pray or, or no. Like, oh my. Okay. Uh, background singers. We had background singers. Okay. Um, but one of the most important things about that as well is that any woman who even was on the worship team um, or even sitting in the audience um, was also required to wear a veil because, um, and, and we'll kind of go into this because we didn't have time to go into it on, on Sunday. Um, but first Corinthians 11, you know, in these order of worship, um, and, um, and early church instructions that Paul's giving one of the sections in first Corinthians 11 instructs that, um, women should cover their heads. Um, and so, um, all, all girls and women in our church were also veiled during veiled and silent during worship services. Um, and, and no, there were no, you know, I mean, there were women Sunday school teachers, but women were actually not allowed to teach or lead Bible studies um, past junior high, because once boys hit puberty, they were men. And women are not allowed to teach or instruct or lead men. So women could not even be leaders in like the youth group unless they were um, discipling the girls. So it, it was, um, here's the thing though. <laughs> I know I, no one else can see your face right now, Dave. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. If you like explain to me how you take these verses and say, oh, I believe the Bible. And it says women should be silent. 
And then you don't follow it all this way. I mean, in some ways I kind of respect their, their commitment because if you're going to be literal about this and say that you have to be literal about it, that is what it looks like. Just for and the so, audience, just for the audience, I'm going to, I'm going to read the two verses that you're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 14, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. In 1 Timothy 2, where Paul writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit her to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Those are the, the two verses in particular that it sounds like your church was taking literally. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, and First Corinthians eleven, which oh, I the eleven was the head cover. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but um, and we're gonna. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna go into those verses pretty in depth at Vintage on Sunday. I hope. Um, so, uh, but you know, the Paul has like a full train of logic and train of thought um, that you know when when you actually follow because. There are some people who will also say, well, God isn't misogynistic and the Bible's not anti-woman, but this guy, Apostle Paul, he was, he was a piece of work. Um, Paul was actually very pro-woman. Um, mm -hmm. he, he worked alongside women. He credited women. There were women who were leading and teaching and discipling the, um, you know, the, uh, one of the main contemporaries of Paul, who everyone was like, Ooh, who do you like? Do you like Paul or do you like Apollos? Like whose teaching do you prefer? Um, in like the very early stages of celebrity apostleship or something, <laughs> um, Apollos, you know, who was considered to be like on equal footing as Paul was discipled by Priscilla. Um, you know, Paul sent his letter to the Romans with Phoebe. Uh, you know, there are, um, you know, the church is meeting in the home of Lydia. There's, uh, and, and Paul's instructions to the church, uh, he's talking to brothers and sisters. Uh, the place of women that Paul ascribes in church and the gifting that he ascribes to them, like he talks, uh, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, uh, he's talking to the brothers and the sisters. Um, when he's talking about the body of Christ, he's talking to the brothers and the sisters. Um, you know, we see in Acts that there are, um, um, there are women who are prophetesses in the early church. There are like women are actually taking an unprecedented role in the early church that was completely foreign for anyone with a Jewish background, but actually somewhat familiar depending on your um, non-Jewish background. For example, if you were in Ephesus where Timothy was serving, for example, um, there was a temple there to Artemis or Diana um, that was very pro-woman. Uh, I shouldn't say pro-woman because quite frankly, it um, used prostitutes in worship, which is not at all pro-woman, but um, the, uh, the- It was a female God... goddess that was exalted, a female yes. goddess exalted. The feminine yes. was exalted for sure. Yes, yes. So before, um, we di before we dig into all the verses, I wanna hear all this. I wanna hear how you get into that. T take me through your journey of even getting to the point where you were, you were talking about these verses, where you were beginning okay. to even challenge them. Because it seems to me you could have gone a long time without ever questioning, oh, this is just the way that faithful Christians view these things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I did, I did, <laughs> I did go a pretty long time. Um, you know, it was like 21 or something when, um, when I first started investigating and crazy enough, these, um, you know, these difficult passages were a critical part of my story of, of finding out who God was and what his actual heart for women was. Um, so I went off to college 
And, um, and I, I learned, so, so I was told that our church was really special, um, and that we really followed Jesus and the way of the Bible and that other Christians were, you know, just really, um, corrupted by the culture of our world and, um, you know, and not us, we were very pure. Um, and so that was why that was one of the explanations of why, um, I was, I needed to be veiled. Well, I went to college and it was a very conservative school. However, a number of the girls did not wear veils and a number of women who I respected didn't wear veils. And so I started to get curious about this whole veiling thing. And so I, um, I worked in the library, um, and uh, that was your work study job. It was my work study job. You you've been um, a nerd a, since the beginning, Liz. A nerd oh, since the beginning. <laughs> the nerdiness started so far before that. <laughs> um, but yes, like I, libraries have always been my happy place. Um, but but in this case, it was a, a major transformation place. So I I went in, you know, I pulled out that like. <laughs> I'm not even that old, but this library was very dated. So it literally was the like drawers of cards, like, oh, yeah. you know, with card the, catalog, with the card catalog, baby. Um, so I went through the card catalog and I pulled out every um, commentary and book that I could find about first Corinthians 11. Um, so you're, I trying, read... you're, you're trying to go through what Christians have said about this, what faithful yeah. Christians, what the Christian church, its history has said about this verse, because you're trying to understand it. Well, I mean, let's, let's give me credit. I was a 21 year old girl who didn't want to wear a veil anymore. Oh. <laughs> so I was trying to figure Fair out enough. like, do I actually have to wear this? Um, so, so first Corinthians 11, um, starting in verse three. And again, some, some of you guys are going to hear this and be like, this isn't the Bible. Um, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Okay. So, so you're in the library and you're beginning to stare at these verses and read them. Talk to me about yeah. that. Um, Cynthia Long Westfall has the best treatment on this. She wrote a book called Paul and Gender. Um, and one of the things that she talks about is just how difficult it is for us to not only read something that wasn't written, written to us. Um, so we really don't know what was going on with the men and the women. Like, we just don't understand what those church services looked like. Like we're, you know, we're really not, not understanding the context, the, um, the cultural context right. that this we're is very written culturally in. distant and, from this. Right. And not even just cultural context, but immediate cultural context. So like when I talk about the culture of my immediate family versus the culture of Silicon Valley versus the culture of America, I'm talking about a very specific uh, sub, sub, sub culture, right? So one of the first things that we should note is that yeah, even in this context of women covering their head, which, you know, f- feels very, um, you know, I, again, like 
putting them into some sort of authority or hierarchy structure that we we would not do as a church today. Um, but it says, when is she supposed to cover her head? Um, when she is praying and prophesying to the church. So <laughs> immediately, like even within this weird veil um, passage, we see that women are praying and prophesying in the early church. Is that silent? No. Um, so we can tell already that these passages have got, um, you know, like there, uh, there's certain things going on for certain people that Paul is addressing, and it is not a blanket statement. Um, and the other thing is that we, as modern Westerners, we have really little concept of what uh, of the significance of veil veils and what veils mean in um, Middle Eastern societies, let, let alone ancient Middle Eastern societies. Um, and I actually watched a really interesting TED talk about uh, with two um, Muslim women, one who chose not to wear a hijab and one who chose to wear a hijab. And they both talked together about why they had made those choices. Um, and, and it was really interesting. And now reading Cynthia's work a lot later, um, it, it um, she puts forward that at this time, uh, wearing a head covering or wearing a veil was a sign that you were a respectable woman in the culture of at that time. If you were a prostitute, if you were a slave, if you were sexually available, you did not wear a veil. You had your head uncovered. And so you can even remember back to the gospels, you know, when unveiled women put their hair out on Jesus's feet, the scandal that that was, you know, again, we're putting together these little pieces, but it's such a foreign thing to us. Um, in this case, what it looks like is actually happening uh, is that women who came into the church who um, were freed women or, or maybe served in the, in the, in the temple to Diana, who were not like in the caste system of their time, able to wear veils uh, or supposed to wear veils, when they came into the church, they were given the opportunity to have the dignity of a veil. Um, and, in, and, and then that sort of makes it read very differently when you think about the way that it talks about um, letting a woman cover her head so that she does not have the shame of having her head uncovered mm. and all of that shaving head and whatever is less a threat and more about taking away the shame that a woman who would, would have of having an uncovered head and allowing her the dignity of a veil. And that actually this word authority is not that she would have a sign that she is under authority on her head, but it is actual a sign of authority on her head. The veil that she is wearing is actually her authority um, as she is praying and prophesying um, to be a dignified woman, to enter this church service and to actually be able to pray and prophesy with authority and with honor, no matter what her backstory was or what the rest of the world thought of her. She had dignity in the church. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds um, me of that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne classic um, book, The Scarlet Letter. Um, she has to wear the big A as a sign of ignominy and shame. And it's like Paul's saying, you get to like actually rip that off and, and yeah. you're, you're free from that. And it's a, a huge honor shame culture. So, of course, that makes sense. But instead of ripping something off, you actually get to put something on 
the society wasn't going to let you have. The books that and all the commentaries that I was reading at that time um, all just had very different views. Everyone landed somewhere slightly different, but almost everyone landed somewhere which was not <laughs> women in the modern world wearing veils. Uh, and so that was that was one of the first times where I realized, you know, there is something more to the Bible than just meets the eye. And yeah. if we want to approach it and interpret it and live by it, like there are there are things that we have to know about what the Bible is and what it does and how to read it. And so it actually really was just the beginning of a journey for me of studying my Bible deeply, learning tools and getting help from other scholars and, and right. commentaries who, you know, who had had more time and more tools to study these things, who, you know, were able to pull in more culturally relevant things, who were able to actually look, you know, because we talk about reading something in context, you almost can't even just read it just in the chapter or even just in the book. There's like all of the letters that Paul wrote and then the whole story of scripture that you're reading in context. So what was your what was your progression after that? So it basically it seems like it was almost like basic hermeneutics, basic reading skills. You started reading the text closely. You had some questions. You started reading some commentaries, some church history commentaries. They're all they're all making you say wait, wait, wait. So what what was next after that as you began to to work through these verses? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, my next step was to talk to my dad and to talk to the um, the leaders of our church and to ask them questions and sort of, um, you know, they had always had an you know an incredible place of authority and respect in my life and and so I brought them what I was learning and um, uh, it didn't go well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was going to totally ask honest. if it went well. I was like, ah, uh, I can't imagine that going well. Uh, no. Um, you know, my, my dad threatened to, you know, bring me home from college and not pay for that education anymore if I was going to be getting those kinds of ideas into my head. So, um, and again, you're getting uh, these ideas from reading Christian commentaries from Bible scholars. Yes. <laughs> Just so we're clear. It's not like you're reading, yeah. you know, some, some fringe you know, sociologist, right? <laughs> no. And that's one of my pet peeves about this actually, Dave, is that people think that, um, you know, any sort of pushback against a perception of misogyny in the Bible is somehow the influence of modern feminism. Um, and they're really cutting, um, cutting off just the beauty of, of Christ and um, and God God designed this world at the very beginning of creation. It says that God designed humanity in His image, um, men and women, male and female. Right. He created them, and um, so both are created in His image, and they were tasked to have multiply, dominion. fill yeah. the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over yeah. the animals. They were they were both charged to continue the work of God, to bring order to disorder here on the planet earth and to co-rule and to, um, and to co-labor together, yeah. um, in, in God's kingdom. Now the fall ruined all of that. But then when we see, um, the, the vision that's cast for new creation, it's really a return back to Eden. 
Um, and so the, uh, in fact, we see like in through Paul's writing, he absolutely has this eschatology and he believes that we should be living now lives that prepare us for eternity. In this and, royal priesthood of, of being God's royal priests, right? This Absolutely. Right. Both men together. and women, yeah. the, the priesthood of all believers, yeah. men and women. And, and this is like our chance to sort of be a light and be um, a vision of the goodness of what God's order and what God's authority and what God's design looks like to the world around us. If you want to look for places where women are treated unequally, paid unequally, not given the same opportunities as men, you can look outside the church. <laughs> There's plenty of those. It's not supposed to be that way inside the church. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want to be careful because there are some people who interpret these verses literally. And, um, and I think that there is a lot of room. I mean, this is first century church worship. As we are, as we are translating that to our modern context of worship, mm. there is a lot of room on that journey of translation um, to, to, discuss and disagree on some of the pragmatic details of what that looks like. Um, but, but on that, you know, on that journey, the things that we cannot lose that the Bible says that still very much apply to us today is that God created and designed men and women to co-rule together, that the church is a bride, a body, and a family where everyone is respected, needed, and loved. Mm -hmm. And that men and women are equally created, gifted, and called to bring God's kingdom to earth. Mm -hmm. And if we cannot see that in scripture, and we allow these little verses to get in our way of understanding our mission as a family to work together as brothers and sisters, um, to, to bring a little bit of heaven and a little taste of God's authority and goodness to the earth where we live, um, we are going to miss um, the chance for the good news to actually be good for everyone. And we, the church will never, never be able to do what it's called to do. We will suck the power right out of it. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, so uh, moving forward, I mean, we talked about, you know, the church is a bride, a body and a family, everyone's respected, needed and loved. What, what have you seen that's been most helpful in empowering and valuing women in church contexts? Um, if this is, if you, you talked about it, it, Paul empowers and values women at levels unprecedented in the ancient world. Jesus does this as well. The Bible does this as well. Um, the world does not do this. We see women um, de denigrated and cast aside and abused and all those kinds of things all over the world. What are the things that you're most excited about when you look at a church and you when, when you see them empowering and valuing women well? What kind of things does that, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, Jen Wilkin wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition in, I want to say it was 2015. Um, I'd have to look it up. So it's an old one. Um, but the, <laughs> I read it when it first came out. Um, and it has, it is still incredibly applicable today. She talks about um, the, it's like the three ghosts that haunt the church today. Um, and uh, she uh, she talks about basically how um, the there are times when women are perceived in in Christian culture and Christian churches as either um, aggressors who are trying to 
snatch power or grab power for themselves Mm -hmm. um, or dominate in some way right as um and i don't have this ahead of in front of me so i might be misquoting her but this is the rough idea um that they are um somehow seductresses or you know kind of temptress okay yeah Yeah, so sort of like you know a fair bait and then um, and then you've got just like the really immature child or, you know, okay. childlike incapable. Yep. Um, and so I think that honestly, it's, it's those three attitudes, um, towards women that really, um, it can be hard to like pinpoint. It's not like an organizational thing or a structural thing, right. but it comes out in the way that, um, women are given opportunities. It comes out in the way that women are mentored. It comes out in the way that, um, women are invited to, to different spaces. Um, and it, and it comes out in, in ways that women are perceived, um, when, when exercising their authority, um, that is given to them by God and entrusted to them by, by the church community. So I think one of the biggest things is to really look for opportunities, um, to treat women um, as actual sisters and allies. Like this is not, you know, this whole thing is not a power play for women to take over or to have more power in the church than they do right now. Um, All all it is, is sort of a call back to God's design um, and intention for men and women um, to help one another, to co-rule, to um, to co-lead, to co-serve, um, and you know that you you mentioned this, uh, and actually it 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 does come up in um, in that First Corinthians eleven passage we read too about women helping. Um, and that word in Genesis, um, that I will make a helper suitable to him, that word is Ezer, and it's used throughout the Old Testament um, many other times. And in many of those cases, it actually refers to God helping Israel. So it is not, it's not a subordinate sort of help. It's not a servant or a slave. I mean, you know, and and even if it were Jesus, you know, Jesus would look at, look up at us from, you know, the the floor while he's washing our feet and say, what's so wrong with being a servant? But, um, but this is, you know, um, the way that the opportunity that men and women have to, um, to complement each other and to work together mm-hmm. in, in the, um, the mission that we have to, to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's, if we can frame it less as a, as a, um, a power thing and, and more as, um, mm-hmm. a a working together thing. And so what, what are the opportunities that you have, um, to, to work together, um, with people who, you know, who help, you know, complete God's image in you, whether they complement your personality or your gift set or, or whatnot, and how can we, um, just allow women to exercise the gifts that the Holy Spirit's given them. Not every woman was gifted to be a teacher or a pastor, and that's sure. fine. Sure. You know, Paul says, like, you know, let's not act like, you know, not some, every guy either. People, yeah, not every guy sure. either. Like, let's not ask, act like, you know, 
some people are important and some people aren't. Paul says like in the body, everybody is important. Like that you think that a part of your body is not important until that part starts hurting. And then you realize <laughs> then it how is. important it is to the whole rest of the body. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not about how more women need to be pastors or more women need to, you know, be preachers or anything like that. It's just about how can we um, look at each other, recognize, like, let, let's, let, let's look at one another with fresh eyes and recognize the way that the Holy Spirit is working in and through each other, the gifts and the capabilities and the, um, the supernatural callings that we each have. And let's figure out how to, um, uh, how to equip, empower, and, and work with one another, um, not just so that uh, we can, um, you know, have equality or, um, or, or anything for equality's sake, but so that we can actually be effective in our calling and our mission to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, Liz, um, thanks for sharing your story. I super appreciate you sharing all that and, and also sharing all the research and the time and the, and the study that you've done um, on these Bible verses um, to help us take the Bible more seriously, not less, to understand it better. Uh, again, sometimes it takes hard work. Like you said, you got to pull the commentaries off the shelf. We cannot be lazy about this. We have to get back to Corinth. We have to listen to scholars, um, especially on stuff that's um, weird, like weird, like let's just be honest. It's weird. These, these texts are weird. It's like, what is yeah. going on? It's very yeah. strange. So especially in that. So thanks for doing that for us. And thanks for, um, and just on a personal note, you know, very few humans, that I interact with in San Jose, California have helped me more in, in, in the development of messages or the development of, in my job than you. Um, you have been a, a co-laborer par excellence for me personally. And I would be deeply impoverished if I didn't have your scholarship, your brain, your sensitivities, your acumen. And I know many, many teachers on the, on the teaching team can say the same. And, um, and so it's, it's, it, you've been a huge benefit to me and, um, it's just a joy to, to watch you flourish in your gifts as well from afar. So, um, and, and up close too. So it's, it's, it's cool. So I'm, I'm really glad you're at this church and I'm really glad that you are, um, helping make this church as, as good as you can with the gifts that you have. And, and I'm really, yeah. I'm really grateful just personally. So that's just me. Oh, I'm just, Dave, I'm just Dave Tish, but man, you, you've no, met I, a, I a ton. absolutely, it is, you know, and I know not everyone who's listening to this, you know, sees sort of behind the curtain of Westgate. Um, and, um, and I just, you know, having, you know, being at least uh, a little behind the curtain part of the time, I'm just so thankful to be part of a team where um, we all make each other better. All right. Well, thanks, Liz. And uh, we will see you. Um, we'll see you soon. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. All right. Bye. Just want to say thanks to Liz Diddy for coming on. Liz, thanks so much for sharing not only what you learned, what you studied, but also your story. Join us next week when we close out our sermon series, How Not to Read the Bible, where we examine the question of whether it's arrogant for Christians to say out of all the thousands of world religions, that theirs is the only one that's true. We'll delve into that next week. See you soon.